This podcast is in the loop, the Legion of Osiris podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at OsirisPod.com. Beyond the Pond is part of the Osiris Podcast Network. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with podcasts and live experiences about artists and topics that you love. We'll be doing many live events this summer around the country, which will include artist interviews, contests, and much more. Sign up for our newsletter at OsirisPod.com to stay in the loop. As a reminder, Relics Magazine is a media partner of Osiris. For music news, go to Relics.com. I'm David Goldstein. I am Brian Brinkman. And you are tuned into episode 32 of the Beyond the Pond podcast. This is the podcast in which Brian and myself utilize the music of Fish as a means of introducing the listener to other bands, preferably not jam bands, kind of using Fish as a Trojan horse in a sense. Because we love Fish, we are Fish fans. The problem with fish fans is sometimes they get a bit myopic. All they do is listen to fish. The next thing you know, all their lawyers are under criminal investigation. And that could have been prevented if they listened to some shoegaze music, put on some funk, some ambient. Just, you know, they had to mix it up. and They didn't. Yeah, you don't need a fixer when you've got Beyond the Pond. We're here for you guys to help with your uh, uh, evolving Spotify collection, your... Uh, new weekly discoveries, your uh, vinyl collection. We're here for whatever you guys need. Uh, we've got a really, yes. really excellent show here for you guys tonight. Um, kind of a unique one from our standards. We don't typically do these, but uh, we've got a really great interview with a podcaster and an author that we both admire a lot. We're really excited to have on. Um, we're going to be talking to Stephen Hyden here in a second. Uh, who is the um, author of the book that's being released today, Twilight of the Gods, A Journey to the End of Classic Rock, and also the host of the excellent music podcast, Celebration Rock Pod. So we're really stoked about this, aren't we, Dave? Yeah, very much so. I know uh, Celebration Rock Podcast, the one I've been listening to a long time, and I've definitely been... uh, been reading Stephen through the years. I know he uh, was an editor at, at the AV Club. He wrote for Pitchfork. He was Grantland. And now, in, in addition to the podcast and the book, I know he has uh, a gig as the culture critic at, uh, I think it's uprocks.com. He so, is. yeah, I was very excited. And if you guys aren't familiar with Stephen, we'll post a link when we, this episode goes live of um, an article he wrote back in 2013 for Grantland uh, titled, Is Fish a Great Band? That was the first time I became aware of him. And um, one thing I, I loved about reading him was that he, he really had an even-handed approach to fish. He was equal parts curious, but also put them in a real um, classic rock lineage and context. And 
you know, in getting into his book, which is something that we talk about a lot in this interview, as well as um, Stephen's uh, own fandom that's grown over the last couple of years for Fish, um, he does a really good job of contextualizing Fish in the larger classic rock genre, the larger history, and, um, you know, really offering insights from a broader standpoint of what it means to be a fan of classic rock. What, what were your thoughts on this book as you were reading it, Dave? For me, it almost felt autobiographical. Yeah. He and I are, we're just two years apart. I think uh, he's 40, I'm 38. And just um, his discovery of classic rock music, whether, you know, being turned on to it, um, I think mostly just via like FM radio stations in his hometown and just his journey through bands like Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd and Springsteen, just... You know, I was taking trips down memory lane saying, this is very interesting. This is kind of like looking into a mirror. I have many of these same experiences. And, you know, anybody who enjoys this podcast will absolutely find something to like in this book because it's written by music nerds, by a music nerd for serious music nerds. Totally. And I mean that in uh, in like the warmest way possible. Totally, totally. Um, I think we are ad- admitted music nerds here. Um, uh, you know, I think I certainly share those sentiments. I think when I started reading the book and he talked about the impact that like the album Dark Side of the Moon had on him, I had a ton of relation to discovering that myself when I was uh, in middle school and kind of what that did to broaden my own perspective of what was possible in music and, um, you know, really the mythology that comes with classic rock he did a really great job of um you know laying out what that feels like and what that was like to discover um i would say and you know attempting not to give too much of the book away because i would recommend everyone reads it he does a great job of discussing classic rock and what it means to be a classic rock fan now in 2018 and what this genre of music looks like from the from uh hindsight how it's changed and what the kind of possibilities are for it going forward. And there's a really cool section in there about fish that I know you guys, all of our listeners, are going to get a ton out of. Um, so would really be excited to hear what your guys' thoughts are on the books. Would definitely encourage all of you to go out and buy it, either at your local bookstore or at your uh, um, on Amazon. You know, wherever you're at, you guys purchase books, go out and get this today. Um, Twilight of the Gods. A Journey to the End of Classic Rock by Stephen Hyden. I think uh, we're best served at this point by jumping into the interview. So, let's go. I'm happy to be with you guys, I, I, and uh, you know, I feel like we're doing good work here. We're diversifying the tastes of fish world. <laughs> it's a, that is all we're trying to do. It's a tough task, <laughs> but some people have to do it. You know. See, I feel like I started out in the in the outer world, and I came into fish world. So I kind of went the opposite way. Uh, but you know, we all met in the middle, so it's 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 exciting. It's all exciting. Um, 
kind of with with that in mind, like where you came from to fish, you know, can you give us just a quick overview of kind of what your entry point to fish was and what it was initially about them that really captivated you as a listener and just a general fan of music? Well, you know, I think uh, like a lot of people, I had a lot of preconceived notions about like what fish was like and what they were about. You know, I I, I grew up in the 90s, so I was certainly aware of fish's existence, but I never really listened to them in the 90s. Uh, and I think it's just because I bought into like the image, you know, there was this idea that like fish is like this sort of like derivative 60s you know aspiring band like a hippie band you know a jam band type thing all the all the cliches that people have about it so i i I avoided it for a long time and then after a while i just i got to the point where i was like well i kind of know every other major band of the 90s i've investigated every major band fish is kind of the only band left and like why have i past judgment on this band that I've never really even listened to. So I started digging into the band. It was kind of a slow process. It kind of started like 10 years ago. I got um, the uh, Colorado 88 collection in the mail as a promo. Interesting. That's a very weird place to start with this. (laughs) But that was like the first real record of theirs that I heard. And I kind of liked it, but, you know, I kind of didn't get it, so I kind of dabbled in it a little bit. And then, you know, it was really only about five or six years ago where I uh, decided to do, like, a real investigation into this band. And I was talking to my friend Rob Mitchum, who uh, your listeners may know. He's a rock critic. He's written for Pitchfork uh, for a long time, and he's a big Fish fan. And I was like, hey, man, be my Sherpa. You know, lead me into the mountain here. Tell me, like, what I should do and, like, where I should start. And he, like, wrote me this email kind of explaining the different eras of Fish. He recommended some shows to check out. He actually told me I should not listen to studio albums by Fish, which is kind of a controversial opinion. I know a lot of Fish fans love the studio records. And I've actually come around to the studio records. There's, you know, several studio records I like. But he was definitely putting the focus on the live stuff. And, you know, I just started from there. And, like, I just found... And I write about this in the book, Twilight of the Gods. There's a chapter on fish in the book. I found that fish was this sort of fascinating postmodern take on classic rock history. I felt like they did a lot of the things that I loved from classic rock. You know, the certainly the sound of fish, a lot of their influences come from that era. A lot of the sort of displays of like instrumental dexterity kind of derived from a lot of 60s and 70s bands um but then they also do a lot of things that are sort of like um simultaneously reverent of classic rock history and sort of like taking the piss out of it like they'll cover Freebird, but they'll do like an acapella version of it right. you know instead of like um the traditional drum solo the drum the drummer comes out and does a vacuum solo you know things like that or they do like they might cover like Highway to Hell, but they do it in a way that is sort of de-emphasizing like the machismo of ACDC, right. you know. <laughs> and um, I was just really fascinated by that. Like that was sort of like my in to that band, the way that they approach classic rock history, and they, in a way, they they sort of remixed it in a, in, a, in a certain sense. Um, and 
I just really got into the mythology of the band, you know, and the idea that like each show has its own story and how you can go on fish.net and read people's reviews of the shows, or you can, like I bought a couple different volumes of the fish uh, of the farmer's almanac. Okay. And I bought, and I bought the fish companion, like the hard, like the, the, the physical book. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so anyway, so that was my entry point into it. Sort of Fish's connection to classic rock history, what I felt like they were doing. And I write about this in the book that like for me, like getting into Fish, it replicated the experience I had getting into like Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd when I was a teenager. Okay. You know, this idea that it was like like what I loved about classic rock bands when I was a kid was that it was like this vast universe of music and also characters and mythology that I didn't know about and that I was eager to explore and I didn't know anything about it. And it was very exciting. And with fish, there's a, there's a similar vastness to that universe. And I, and, but I didn't know anything about it. I was sort of like a kid again in that respect. And, you know, once you start getting into the sort of the fish world, there's very opinionated people in that world. And there's, there's a lot of experts. There's some people that, love fish so much that it's almost not fun for them anymore. Like they're very sort of like, <laughs> like I've watched live streams with people who are just complaining the entire time about like what fish is doing and like how, well, they're playing this again, you know, or, or they're doing backwards down the number line in the second set, you know, they're complaining about that. Whereas like I, I have kind of an ignorant thing about them where I just, I'm sort of in the phase where I, I, I just enjoy the experience of watching them. I, I, like there's an inexperience that I have a naivete about fish that like I love. And I, I, I kind of don't want to lose that, even though I love kind of getting better versed in the music. And, and I think I am better versed than I was certainly five, six years ago when I got started. But um, I don't funny, know. I'm, I have I'm to remind myself to go back to that phase. Cause I almost have a relationship with fish at this point. Like I have with, my favorite baseball team in that I love them so much. And I want to see a, I want to see them, you know, essentially in a, in a sense, win a show, you know, play a show where I'm fully surprised where a song comes after that. I wasn't expecting that there's a really great moment where they hook up and jam, but then at the same time, you'll get frustrated uh, in the same way that, that I will with my, my favorite baseball team when they're not performing up to expectations. <laughs> so uh, it, it's, it's an yeah. interesting place to be in with a band. Oh yeah, totally. And you know, and Fish fans are super demanding of the band. I mean, that you know, one of the great things about uh, the Baker's Dozen was seeing a lot of those people kind of just enjoy it, you know, because like totally. Fish was Fish was doing something uniquely different with with that series. I mean, they're you know not playing any repeats. It was like even the cantankerous people were really into it, you know. So it was just something that everyone could just kind of get together and enjoy. Because I've definitely been with Fish fans either at shows or watching streams or whatever, where I'll be like, fuck, that was amazing. And I'll turn to them and they're like, yeah, well, you know, fine, it's fine. We call those people... We call those people jaded vets. Yes, uh, jaded. sort of are like good tongue in cheek. I mean, in order to be a jaded vet, you have to have seen them many, many times and have lots of uh, lots of thoughts and opinions about the band. But right. yeah, they can be a bit cantankerous. And you feel like, oh, so I'm kind of an asshole for enjoying this. Right. Or I'm, I'm kind of, I'm like a babe in the woods for enjoying. Yeah, I'm like, oh, you silly young padwan. You know, you yeah, you will, 
you, you, you'll buy this jam, but I've seen like you know I was there in '97, man. Right. <laughs> I saw the fall '97 tour, man. That was the real shit. Yeah, and like I think just for arena rock in the history of arena rock, what they were doing in arenas every night on that tour, you know, at that time, uh, you know, in front of like tens of thousands of people, and and the risks that they were taking uh, is. Uh, just phenomenal um i mean the, the thing i love about fish that i try to explain to people who maybe don't get into it is that like fish they're not this i think people who aren't into fish perceive them to be this sort of like uh you know uh instrumental uh show-offiness for the sake of show-offiness or virtuosity right. for the sake of virtuosity and i always try to explain to people that there's such a playfulness to what they do you, you feel like they're just going up there and having a ball you yeah. know yeah. but they're doing that in front of huge crowds 20, like 25, but, yeah where there's like a lot of risk involved changing though i think that there have been signs um and you know i haven't been in the culture as long as a lot of people so my you know my perspective on here might be skewed a little bit but it it seems to me that like it's safer now to talk about loving fish like you have robin robin pecknold from fleet foxes playing you know tipping a cap to fish because fish covered them and someone was telling me maybe this is one of you guys like on twitter that like war on drugs they were doing like fish references on stage oh yes yes and he referenced game henge game henge right oh really see and i've never talked to adam about this but i wouldn't be surprised if he liked fish i mean and i know dave I, i'm pretty sure dave would be on board with that kind well, of thing he, dave is a grateful dead fan right oh yeah He's a noted grateful dead fan and and Adam is too. I mean, they were doing like Touch of Grey. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know? They covered that for the Day of the Dead. They were doing uh, Touch of Grey like years before that compilation record, too. Oh, like, interesting. I hadn't heard that. Yeah. Yeah. They were doing that. I, I don't know how early. I feel like that was like 11 or 2011 or 12. They were doing that live. So, so even because, you know, because like the Grateful Dead, that's another thing that like used to just be like verboten for indie bands to talk about the Grateful Dead. And that has really changed. I remember to reference Rob Mitchum, who got you up to get you into fish. I think he wrote a review for pitchfork, uh, maybe almost 10 years ago. It was the band woods, uh, their, their second album. Um, and he introed it with saying within the last year or two, the Grateful Dead has stopped being a dirty word within indie rock circles and then use that as kind of a thematic jumping off point to review the record, which was very shimmery. It sounded a lot like um, something you would get from like early 70s dead. And that to me, I remember kind of realizing that there was something of a crossing over point that 
the idea of a 30-minute Dark Star wasn't that weird to, you know, indie rock bands that would get up and play in small clubs in Brooklyn. Well, um, and, like, and you did have people, like, in the 2000s, like, I, you know, like Ryan Adams and the Cardinals. Oh, totally. Instance, I, I think was totally a bridge band. Certainly for me. Like, I like the dead, uh, you know. It's, I it's, think it's the kind album of, Cold kind of, Roses, probably Cold Roses is as big a tribute to, like, American Beauty era dead than any other, like, I guess, classic or modern rock band has done. Oh, yeah. Like, I think it, it was even Phil Lesh. He started, like, playing some shows at Ryan Adams. I think um, I think Phil's kids turned him on to Ryan, and Phil heard Cold Roses and told Ryan, no, that album really means a lot to me. And that's when they started playing together in, like, 2007, and that's when Phil and friends started playing lots of Ryan Adams covers, actually. Right, right. And um, if you listen to the bootlegs uh, from that time, Ryan Adams and the Cardinals, you know, because Neil Cassell was in his band, and Neil Cassell did that. Oh, oh really? Yeah, he was in the Cardinals. Oh, I didn't know that. That makes so much oh, sense. Yeah. I know. Oh, God. Okay. So, you know. Rings around the sun. What, what was that? The uh, Grateful Dead. Uh, circles around the sun. Circles Very around good. the sun that Neil Cassell did. Yes. Um, and Neil Cassell now plays with Chris Robinson, who's just—he's doing like Grateful Dead cosplay basically at this point. But um, that's a very, very good way of putting it. I mean, yeah, yeah. he has the band that's competing with his brother, right? They each have like their own fake Black Crows cover band. Well, yeah. I mean, well, I'm, this is interesting because I'm currently working on a book with steve gorman from the black crows ah, okay. he's doing a he's doing a book about the black crows so like i'm i'm like ensconced in this world right now <laughs> and there's things that uh i probably shouldn't say that's fair because uh, it's like <laughs> this book is awesome though like if you like the black crows you're gonna love this book this book has like uh I mean, there's a lot of dirt in the book about the Robinsons, but there's also like a lot of really cool stuff about their interactions, like with other musicians, like because the Black Crows, um, they're a fascinating band for many reasons, but they interacted not just with like all these classic rock people, like touring with Jimmy Page and like, you know, they toured with the Stones and like, I mean, Steve has stories about every major people from that person from that era, but they also, you know, knew a lot of the 90s bands and like brendan o'brien who is you know sort of the one of the big rock producers of that time he got mm. his start with the black crows he worked on the first two black crows records and 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 uh george Pearl, Julius should produce the second one right 
Well, George Chakulius produced the first two, and Brendan O'Brien right. was the engineer on those records. Oh, okay. okay. And when Pearl Jam, Pearl Jam loved how the second Black Crows record sounded, Southern Harmony Musical Companion, and they heard about Brendan O'Brien from the Black Crows, and Brendan O'Brien ended up producing verses. Did not know the that. Se- second Pearl Jam record, and then he also did. Uh, O'Brien also did the first uh, Stone Temple Pilots record. And then he did all the other Stone Temple Pilots records. But, like, the, the Pearl Jam records and the STP records are the ones that put Brendan O'Brien, like, really on the map as a producer. But he was a local musician in Atlanta when the Black Crows did Shake Your Moneymaker. And, like, Steve was sort of like, George Chakulius was looking for an engineer. And Steve was like, well, I know this guy, Brendan O'Brien. You know, why don't we bring him in? And Brendan O'Brien actually like plays uh, some lead guitar on that black crows record like oh. he plays the guitar so he plays the guitar solo in hard to handle because hmm. the because the their lead guitarist couldn't play that solo so brendan o'brien just played it and he, um, he also plays bass on uh on trey trey anastasia's solo album from uh, 2005 shine see that was a very good way to bring it back to fish. Yeah, that was very good. <laughs> you, guys, you guys are professional it podcasts. Only t- it only took us uh, 32 episodes to get the Only 32 moves. Crows. I've seen them live several times. I think they're phenomenal, which is why I can never entirely buy Chris Robinson as well, like a hippie frontman. It just well, doesn't really do it for me. Yeah, and you know, again, this is like uh, I don't want to give away all this book, but I mean, that is one of the tensions in the band about um, but certainly it was from Steve's perspective that, you know, Chris Robinson, like in 1990, hated the Grateful Dead and like hated hippies. And, you know, he wanted to be like a rock and roll guy. And then he had like sort of a come to Jesus moment with the Grateful Dead. And he and this was, you know, this was when Jerry Garcia was still alive. So he actually met Jerry Garcia and he like hung out with the dead a little bit like in 91, 92. And then he just became a total convert and he wanted to turn the black crows into like a grateful dead type band but the grateful dead but but the black crows you know they're like a kick-ass rolling stones led zeppelin kind of band they're not really like i, I mean they, they they ended up jamming a lot in the mid 90s i don't know if you've ever investigated those bootlegs uh, like black crows bootlegs from like 96 97 like when mark four that have been band. like three snakes one charm era yeah, like Amorica and Three Snakes, One Charm. Like when Mark when Mark Ford and Rich Robinson 
were like the guitar duo in that band. It, it's pretty phenomenal. Like, you know, if you like Almond Brothers type jamming, it's pretty kick-ass stuff. Like, and Mark Ford's an incredible guitar player, but he was also using like heroin at that time, and he got mm. junked. He got pretty junked out by the time he got fired from that band. But one uh, of the things for me with Brendan O'Brien is that I've always loved the '90s stuff, being Pearl Jam and Stone Temple Pilots and Raging Against the Machine. Um, other than the Rising. I'm not a big fan of his production work on Springsteen Records because I think uh, a lot of a little bit overproduced. I think not as stripped down as it could be. I know you're like a Springsteen guy, and I think one of the things I really liked about reading your book was the chapter on Springsteen where it's um, it gets quite like relatable when you're talking about being at a concert, having to... Uh, like text your wife because you feel guilty during jungle land and <laughs> she texts you back a picture of, you know, I don't want to give too much of the book away, but certainly uh, for the dads amongst us at rock shows, I've just had huge laughs from that portion of the book. I've just, uh, <laughs> yeah. I've had I mean, a hard time with like magic and working on a dream. It's just too smooth. Magic to me is, um, is my favorite Springsteen record of the 21st century. I, I think totally agree with that songs. I think are, because the, the rising I like, but um, I don't know. That record is like there, there's about a third of that record that I don't love. Well, your and, your recent series uh, got me to do a full uh, chronological deep dive, um, which oddly enough awesome. I did when you did the Pearl Jam series as well. I think it's such a I love that approach to listening to artists that I'm super familiar with because you hear their music always in a completely new way when you hear album by album by album. And I found myself, when I got to The Rising, not liking it as much as I had originally enjoyed it. Obviously, there's a ton of emotional connection that people have to that record around when it came out. I think it was a really important album thematically from you know an American rock perspective, but... When I put on Magic, I, I think I only listened to Magic a handful of times when it came out, and I was very much into kind of weird noise-based music at that time, and so I didn't have a ton of energy for Springsteen. I put it on again a couple of weeks ago, and I was blown away by how much it sounded like a late 70s, early 80s era Springsteen just you know in the mid-2000s. Like It had that energy to it. And the songs, I think, are his best collection of songs like mm-hmm. girls in the summer clothes and um you know like radio nowhere i think yeah. gypsy biker is like such a great song well terry's um, song to close it is just like one of his most powerful songs oh yeah devil's arcade on there i just think it's such a great collection of songs um this is
I mean, yeah, like working on a dream, I don't think is is definitely pretty uneven. Right. You know, to put it to put it mildly, <laughs> yeah, Wrecking Ball, I like. Although the production on that, I think, is that is the one little, with. The- they had Tom Morello playing guitar solos. Or is that High Hopes? Yeah. No, well, I'm both. I think he. I think he plays on both of those. Like Wrecking Ball is without the E Street Band. Hmm. Um, okay. It's like uh, he hasn't made an E Street Band record. I think since Magic. That would make sense. I mean, he still tours with them, but he's also doing, like, he's doing his Broadway residency right now because High Hopes was a collection of songs and outtakes or songs from the last ten years, wasn't it? Yeah, it doesn't feel like a proper album. I no. think it is. I think it's presented as an album, but it it feels more like outtakes than like a real collection of songs. He apparently has an album in the can that he's had for a while. Um, that is, I think, another. It's like another solo record. Okay. He's he's described it as like a a California singer songwriter record. Hmm. So I'm not really sure what that means, but um, <laughs> I don't know. I mean. To, you know the 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 2010s i think from an album perspective hasn't like his albums haven't been great i think wrecking ball was pretty good um but like touring he's been great like his shows have been awesome like i i loved the river tour i saw three shows on that tour and i you know like you said before like i wrote i write about that tour in the book yeah. because it was interesting because like part of the inspiration for twilight of the gods was you know i started writing in 2016 and like a lot of uh well-known rock stars passed away that year starting with david bowie at the beginning of the year and then prince passed away uh, a couple months after that glenn fry died in there and there were right. there were several others um and springsteen was touring during that time so there, there was a stretch where he was doing like tributes to recently deceased rock stars seemingly like every week you know so it, it kind of felt like the morning tour after a while it's like springsteen is here to help get us through this know. period where we're starting exactly to loss and exactly and yeah. it was and it kind of tied in with the album really like well like you know obviously not intentionally but it um i don't know it, it fit with like the theme of the river in a, in a way, um, which was fascinating. One one thing I'm curious about, um, not to totally you know shift gears, but it kind of um, goes in line with what you're saying about Springsteen, um, in a sense about like what you were mentioning about the Black Crows from an improvisational standpoint. Um, you know, just to like quickly bring it back to Fish. One thing that I've always liked from your perspective when I've heard you speak about Fish, when I've read about your your thoughts on Fish is um, really your interest in the notion of how every show of theirs is different. And this is obviously something that comes as no surprise to Fish fans. And, you know, take it from a business standpoint, from an artistic standpoint, it's a really clear recipe for, like, their own success, for fan engagement, for creative growth. Um, You know, and I think Springsteen does that really well. Like, I've seen Springsteen a number of times. I've never really seen the same show twice. Um, I feel like he does a good job changing things up and adding... You know, certainly certain new elements on a nightly basis and taking risks like playing a double album for an entire tour, even though you're going to see similar songs on that tour. Um, but kind of from your end, are there any bands that you see right now that are taking that specific model from Fish, maybe not improvising on the level that they are, but really approaching the live 
venue and a live atmosphere in a way that it's like an opportunity for almost a new album in the immediate? I mean, there's no one uh, certainly on Fish's level that does it like they do. By the way, I should say widespread panic does. In case there's like panic people out there listening because <laughs> I've written about Fish. I wrote about Fish last uh, year for uprocks.com and I wrote a column talking about how I think Fish is a model for other bands because right. we live in an era now like where recorded music really doesn't have a lot of like money making value for bands. Totally. So if you can kind of make the live show the focal point of what you do it can be a really good thing for bands i think moving forward and i use fish as an example of that and i got all this like stuff from pe- widespread panic people who are just like you know pissed off that i didn't like talk about widespread panic it's like well, widespread panic was streaming their shows first like once you talk it's like your, your story is very inaccurate you know get your facts <laughs> so i just want to say widespread panic people yeah don't be mad at me <laughs> So Dude, shout out to um, the the podcast, the Bluest Tape, Widespread Pan, Pan Podcast, part of the Osiris Podcast Network. Yes, those guys are those, those guys are great. Yeah, they're yes. they're gonna happy about that. Uh, and I like Widespread Panic. Widespread Panic gets a shout out in my book. So you know, Panic people, you can buy the book. I I didn't write a whole chapter on Widespread Panic like I did for Fish, but I had to give them a shout out. So, um, <laughs> but but no, like, to get back to your question, I don't think anyone's doing it on a level of Fish, but there are bands that I think. Um, do people to collect their shows, even if they're not making their shows as different as Fish does? And you mentioned Springsteen. You know, Springsteen doesn't improvise on the level that Fish does. You know, he changes the set list, but you know, there's not a dramatic difference if you're going to hear Thunder Road in one show versus Thunder Road in another show. Right. It's similar to what Pearl Jam does, where they're not necessarily going to jam out on every song. And yet, because I was trying to explain this to like, a friend of mine who loves fish and he's like well why do you collect pearl jam shows like what's the difference there and it's like well when you listen to like a pearl jam live show it's like eddie vetter might talk about the weather at that <laughs> show or you know there might or maybe like mike mccready like dropped his guitar in the middle of a solo and he picked <laughs> it back up and <laughs> and like with a bit and you know it's not going off on a 20 minute jam that's totally unique but there are little sort of atmospheric things in that those bands do that that make it fun that give it a documentary aspect almost like we're you know i think the fun of following fish is that it's like following a baseball team you know like you you, you're with them all the time you you feel like you get to know the band you you feel like you're with them when you're listening to the shows and um i think you get that from other bands even if they're not jamming as much you know like i saw um uh wilco on their last tour i saw the the last three shows of their tour they did a three night stand here uh in in st paul at the palace theater and it was awesome to see a band like that doing a stand and see you know they played different set lists every night but it wasn't like it was probably like 60 percent or so the same and 40 percent different and it's funny because like i would hear fish fans in my twitter feed kind of complain about that that they weren't it wasn't enough variety for them not really understanding that like for the average music fan 
who's maybe maybe only going to go to one of those shows. You know, they want to hear, uh, you know, Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. Yeah, yeah, they, yeah. They're going to want to hear "Out of Sight, Out of Mind." They're going to want to hear "I'm Trying to Break Your Heart." Um, yeah, you can't go too far out with a band like that. But like, if you're a Wilco fan, like forty percent difference with each set list, and a different Nels Klein guitar solo maybe on like Impossible Germany two out of three nights. That's like still pretty cool, you know. And like you kind of want to hear Impossible Germany more than once, you know. You want to hear what Nels Klein does because because he's, he's going to do something different, maybe not dramatically different, but if you've heard enough versions of it, it's cool. And even if it's kind of the same, it's still an awesome guitar solo. Like you want to hear what he's doing. So um, I don't know. I I do think that more bands though should be doing this. I think there's a lot of indie bands. Like I think of a band like real estate, for instance, okay. I think, I think that band has it in them to, uh, play two sets and to maybe stretch out a little bit more instrumentally. And I think that they would attract more fans. I think that they would actually become, um, I think, you know, cause like I've talked to Martin Courtney of, he's the leader of that band. I know he loves Yola Tango oh, yeah. and I think, and, and that's like his favorite band of all time. And he's recorded, they recorded, I think their third record at the Wilco loft, you know? So like they kind of are engaging in that world a little bit, but I think there's a little bit of weariness for them being a little bit too jammy. But to me, that's an example of a band that would actually be a lot more popular if they just shed that and they went full bore and maybe stretched it a little bit. Plus the bass player, I think Alex Bleeker, he's like, that guy's a full on deadhead. And a big fish fan too. Right. Alex Bleeker and the freaks. I listened to Atlas over the weekend. um, Prior to us recording, just had it on as, um, on Sunday afternoon, and I kept, I had a very similar thought of, and I, I didn't know any of this about real estate, but um, that's a perfect Sunday afternoon record, by the way. It really was. It was. It was wonderful. I can have my windows open here because it's actually springtime in Colorado, um, and I was listening to that, and having an afternoon beer, had baseball on in the background, and I kept <laughs> thinking, though, you know, to your point, like these guitar solos and these guitar lines would work really well if they were just stretched out a little bit further. And I would love to see where the band would go from a musical standpoint. just that it's too much of a risk that it's already like I think about it sometimes you know I go to work on a day-to-day basis and 
you know, there's differences within my day, but there's obviously structures to what I do. And it can be monotonous from time to time, but like, you know, you figure out whatever ways you can to make it different in your own mind. And you have, you know, different people that you're working with on a day to day basis. And I wonder if it's the same for a band that plays a similar set list or has a similar approach on a night to night basis, you know, different venue. So maybe you some, notice something different with the crowd and that's enough. Like, do you think that like, I guess, why do you think that more bands don't take that approach? Um, you know, not necessarily in terms of long jamming, but in terms of really changing up the shows on a night-to-night basis. I mean, I think there's, you know, probably three reasons for that. One, um, audiences generally maybe aren't trained to appreciate that, okay. you know, where, uh, you know, I think a lot of audience, I think a lot of bands, I mean, this is sort of like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Like the reason why fish has an audience that appreciates what they do is because they've trained their audience to appreciate it. Yeah. You know, or, or they, or they've done something that like they've, they've acted in such a way for like 30 some years where people who are into a band that will play different sets every night and do, you know, interesting freeform jamming type stuff. Like they're going to be gravitated to a band like that. Whereas like for like maybe the average music listener, you know, they, there's a certain list of songs that they want to hear a band play. And if the band doesn't play that, then they're disappointed. So that can be an obstacle for a band. I think the second reason is that a lot of bands just aren't good enough instrumentally to pull that off. You know, especially a lot of indie bands now, um, who maybe start out, you know, you know, a lot of bands now aren't really bands, you know, like they, it's like one person who is recording everything and maybe they posted a record on Bandcamp and the Bandcamp record takes off and then they have to kind of train themselves to become a band. Like they have to tour because the record takes off. That happened with Car Seat Headrest, right. you know, mm-hmm. like where Will, Will Toledo was recording everything on his own. In a way, it, it's, it kind of was true of War on Drugs. I think the War on Drugs, they're a great live band now, but they had to become a great live band. Totally. You know, like they weren't like, like that was like a studio project for Adam. And, um, he didn't really have the same musicians for a long time. You know, it was sort of like kind of like a rotating cast of people. He's had the same people now for, you know, at least a couple of years, like I think several years. And, you know, and they tour all the time. So like when they were at Coachella last weekend, they were awesome. It sounded great. But I saw them like in 2000, I saw them like in 2011, like opening up for Destroyer uh, for Slave Ambient era. And like, it was really good double bill. Yeah, it was, it, it, you know, and there, and there was nobody there, you know, it was probably like 20 or 30 people there because, you know, they were the first band uh, uh, on the bill that night. And it was good. Like, I liked it, but like, it wasn't the same as that show that they just played at Coachella.
so so yeah so like a lot of bands they're not good enough instrumentally to pull it off um but uh, the third reason i think is that you know like when you when you talk about indie rock indie rock has such an ingrained ideology that derives from punk music mm-hmm. you know punk music is sort of the the core of what indie rock is it's what a lot of bands draw from and it's like where a lot of critics come from so people judge music through that lens and what is the ideology of punk you know simple straightforward amateurish you know don't be too good at your instrument don't write long songs don't jam mm-hmm, you know mm-hmm. and and when and when you when you read music criticism that comes from that world that's where they're coming from so anything that that deviates from that is bad you know not different it's bad like you are if you jam you are self-indulgent you are not making good music so i think that's a hard obstacle mentally for a lot of people to get over to say wait a second music is music right if it's good it's good and if we're just gonna draw from punk maybe that's why a lot of indie music is boring because there's not a lot of things you can do with that ultimately at least not 30 or 40 years after the fact you know like i love the ramones too but like what are you gonna do with the ramones now you know it's really hard to do something with that template uh that is still exciting in 2018 but if you're if you're a little bit more open-minded i think a whole palette of things open up opens up and uh you can do a lot more musically and i think for me like the most exciting music most exciting rock music is music that like isn't afraid to be uh, indulgent you know Mm. that can that that isn't so strict right right right. like no you know, it's got to sound gray. It's got to have three chords. It's got to sound like shit. You know, like <laughs> if, 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 if that is what your definition of great music is, like, I just don't think, I, I, I don't know. That seems really limiting to me. I don't know how much you can do with that anymore. One question um, I just had is I know in your book, you focus a lot on your like childhood, just growing up as a teenager and listening to the radio and getting all of your Led Zeppelin, Springsteen, Pink Floyd, all that was just like on the radio being locked in your room in like Wisconsin back in like the eighties and nineties. And now with someone who's like 13 and 14 years old, exactly how would they be getting that today? Cause I mean, terrestrial radio is not what it used to be. And I'm just wondering how does that happen, you think? And, I mean, what's – do the kids get it today from, like, having everything at their fingertips in Spotify? Or, I mean, what turns someone on the classic rock in this day and age? Well, I mean, in the book, I, I talk about how, like, when I was a kid, I listened to the radio, and the radio sort of created a story for you. Like, right. what the radio did was – like, you listen to your local classic rock station, and they, you know, and they would play – the same artists all the time and that was like okay this is how i know what's good this is how i know what's important you know and obviously you get a little bit older and you get a little bit smarter and you see the gaps in that and you realize how limiting that is and but you know for a long time like my brain was programmed by radio and mtv and music magazines and like what people what older people told me you know like 
you know, like you read Rolling Stone and Rolling Stone says Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band is the greatest album of all time. So you're like, okay, that's the greatest album of all time. You know, and they say Bob Dylan is the greatest songwriter of all time. And you're like, okay, Bob Dylan's the greatest songwriter of all time. Now, I happen to think some of that is true, but, you know, it is a, it is a narrative that is imposed on you. Like, right. you, you think it's the truth when you're 14. You don't realize it's just someone's opinion. So now I think what happens, I mean, you know, we all romanticize our childhoods, you know, and, like, I'm glad I found out about music the way I did, you know, it was, it worked out for me. You know, I had a lot of fun discovering music when I was, when I was young. Um, but it's obviously better now. It's obviously better now to be 14 and someone's like, Hey, have you ever heard Led Zeppelin? And be like, no, I haven't. I'm going to enter Led Zeppelin into Spotify. Now I have every Led Zeppelin album. Right. I can become a Led Zeppelin expert in a week because every album is here. I can read articles online about them, you know, that the, um, the amount of work it took for me to do that was so much more. Like I had to have my brother buy me Let's Up on four on cassette. That's how I got that album. You know, if I wanted to get more Let's Up on tapes, I had to ride my bike to the record store. And like, <laughs> again, like in my brain, I'm like, I romanticized that because it was amazing. It was exciting to discover music that way. But like, you know, if I would have had the choice to enter into a computer, like any record that I could ever want to listen to, you know, I would have chosen that. Of course I would have chosen that. So, you know, I think what happens to kids now is that, like you said, they have so much at their fingertips and they can decide that they love Led Zeppelin and they love classic rock and they can be into that. You know, it's so much easier now to find your tribe, to find what you're into. It's not so defined anymore by what the media is telling you is important. You know, if no one else at their school liked Led Zeppelin, it didn't matter. They love Led Zeppelin, so they can listen to it all day, all day long. They don't have to wait for the radio, for the class. Because, I mean, they may not even have a classic rock station in their town anymore. Totally. You know, who knows? You know, so they can, they can find that for themselves. So... I mean, it's easier now, really, to get into that stuff if you want to get into it. It's like I've just always wondered if I was happened to be 15 years old in 2013 as opposed to 1994, would I be still going to fish shows or would I be going to like the EDM festival and listening to like the bass drop? <laughs> Maybe you would have, you know, but like, <laughs> you know, this stuff wasn't cool in 1994 either. You know, like 94, okay, sure. you know, like none of my friends liked Led Zeppelin or Pink Floyd at the Beatles. I mean, they all loved like um, the offspring, right. you know, right. that's, that's the shit that was huge then. Or, you know, or it was like gangster rap was huge. Like, uh, or, or people loved, you know, First Weezer album. or, or like, you know, they like the bodyguard soundtrack. I mean, there was probably, you know, like most people at my school, like, you know, we're probably just listening to, to uh, pop shit, you know, just like people listen to it now, you know, like that pop shit always is the biggest shit in the world. Right. <laughs> that, that shit always outsells everything. It's always been the biggest, you know, like people say like, well, you know, back in the eighties, everyone loved guns and roses and you too. Like, no, they didn't. They like Whitney Houston was way bigger than, them. <laughs> you know, Gene Arce sold a lot of records, but like, you know, what, pop shit there's a reason why it's called pop music you know because 
it's fucking popular and it's always going to be that way. So, um, I think, I don't know. I, I just think about myself at that age. It didn't make any sense. Cause like people say now, like, well, why would any kid listen to classic rock? But it's like, well, why would any kid listen to it when I was a kid? Right. right, right. You know, it didn't really make it that much more sense. I think, I just think that the assumption that like kids always like the trendy thing is obviously wrong. There's, you know, a lot of kids, you know, like a lot of people like the trendy mainstream thing. That's why it's the trendy mainstream thing. But there's also kids who rebel against that. And that's always going to be true. Whether they, and they may not be guitar bands, it might be something else. But not everyone's always going to like the mainstream thing. And like a band like Fish, you know, what they offered to people was something. It was a world outside the normal world. You know, I think that's probably what attracted a lot of people to it originally. It's like, wow, this 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 thing, you can't hear it on the radio. You, you can't see it on MTV. But, like, you go to shows and there's, like, thousands of people here. Like, how do you explain this? Yeah, totally. You know? And uh, that's that. It, when you have something like that, that's always going to be attractive for people. That's never going to go away. <laughs> as well you know, some of the biggest takeaways I took from your book um, like two offhand were um, like the idea of partying and abusing drugs in music doesn't really seem that cool anymore and you do a really good <laughs> job of like breaking down throughout the book this idea that like um, there was a lot of uh, selfishness in, in what rock musicians were like portraying as like artistic necessities um, but like uh, along with that, and we saw that, you know, as, as fish fans, there was a lot of, you know, drug abuse and then the band almost collapsed and died and they came back and health is a huge, huge priority for the band and they're thriving on a creative standpoint. But kind of in the same sense, you talk about, and you talked about this a lot in a recent interview you had, um, with, uh, I'm totally going to butcher his name, the lead singer from Gang of Youths, um, uh, Dave LaPape. Yes, we'll say that's true. I had to I had to look up a video to pronounce his name correctly. <laughs> okay, okay. For the podcast, and I would probably butcher it now if well, I tried to do it right. Well, what, what you talk with him a lot about that I, that I really found fascinating. Not only you know, obviously he's he's um, had his own issues from a substance abuse standpoint. He's you know um, wrote a lot about his his recovery from that, but also you know his band is incredibly diverse, and so you have these two kind of big. Uh, new pillars of rock and roll and of, you know, I guess you could in a sense call this like a new era of classic rock where drug abuse, partying, you know, um, sex, drugs, rock and roll doesn't really sell like it did 30, 40 years ago. And also you have a lot more women um, 
you know, rising to the fore and, and leading bands and being songwriters. The genre in of itself is much more LGBTQ friendly. There's less white males leading the way. And I, I wonder, you know, from your standpoint, you know, you have young kids who I'm guessing you want to turn on to music. Um, I could be wrong. I could be just assuming that. But, you know, I mean, I, I, have, I have a young son. I want to turn him on to music the way that I was turned on to music. I know Dave's very similar. Do you see where we are right now? Is there, like, different entry points that you want to uh, introduce your kids to music through or that you think that, you know, this a younger generation wants to understand music through, like, not necessarily Led Zeppelin, Black Sabbath, even the Beatles? Like, is there a different way to approach classic rock nowadays that we've moved so far beyond that original era? Well, you know, I don't know. I mean, you know, as far as my kids go, I don't really want to dictate to them what to listen to. Okay. I mean, I play I, I play music all the time in the house, obviously. My son knows a lot of the music that I play, and he likes a lot of it. Uh, like I, you know, he likes the War on Drugs, and he he likes his favorite song of all time is "State of Love and Trust" by Pearl Jam. He loves that song. Oh, right Damn, yeah. single soundtrack. That's, he loves the. Uh, he taste. loves. Uh, Sean Lennon and Les Claypool put out a record uh, recently yeah. a couple years ago. Um, the the with the uh, like the Claypool Ono Delirium or something like that. I can't remember the total name of it. He loves that record though. Um, but you know, he's five years old. I'm sure when he gets older, he's going to have his own music. He may still like the music that I introduced him to. He may have like a fondness in his heart for it because his dad played it for him. But you know, the you know the I'm not. You know, you see these 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 dads or these moms who like dress their kids up in like pixies t-shirts you know or like you know like yeah. their doll like their dolls you know right. I, I don't i mean i don't really want to do that i don't want to be like assigning my kids albums like their homework you know like you got to listen to real music because then they're gonna hate it you know the, you know there's no way the, like i want them to enjoy listening to music i don't want them to feel like uh, I gotta make my dad happy and listen, you know, and, and enjoy this stuff. Um, you know, they're gonna find the music that means something to them their own way, and I have no idea how that's gonna be. You know, I know that they'll have access to my music collection, and if they want it, it's there for them. Um, but you know, you gotta let your kids discover their own culture. I think I, I think that's really important. Um, you know, because, uh, yeah, I, I mean, there is no world in which parents, uh, in which a kid like wants their parents to dictate to them like what they care about. Totally, you know, totally. that, that well, seems I like a recipe for disaster. <laughs> you know, maybe I'm just trying to reverse psychology with them. Like, if I, <laughs> if, if I act like I don't care, because you know, like if my kids like in ten years, you know, and God willing, like. Wilco will still be on the road at that time. Like if my son like wants to go see Wilco, I, that would be awesome. Like, and I would be like for sure. Or if he wants to go see whoever. Um, but you know, I, I want to make that available to them without them feeling obligated to do it. Okay. I, I, get, think. I, I, get, I get that. I mean, yeah, it's uh Rock's not really cool if uh, if your if your dad approves uh, type of thing. <laughs> right, right. Um, but, you although, know, you know, I, know I, I was I was gonna say like I discovered music through uh, my my dad's like you know I I started listening to the Beatles because my dad had 
yeah. That that music, but he wasn't like, or or I, in 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 my book I write about Fleetwood Mac's Rumors, yes, which mm. is one of my dad's favorite albums, and he used to play it all the time, maybe because my mom and dad got divorced. You know, I I, I write about this in the book, but it's like I I just. I think back retrospectively, like, was my dad listening to Go Your Own Way and thinking about my mom, you know, and thinking like, oh, my, oh, how could you do this to me? And like <laughs> venting to Fleetwood Mac and I'm sitting in the car with him. It's a sort of like a weird thing to think about. But I'm sure that well, was actually, happening. On, it must have been happening on some level, though. It's something I thought about because, like, for example, um, when I was in like seventh grade, I came home from a sleepover and. I was singing another, another Brick in the Wall, and my dad took me to Best Buy the next day and bought me Dark Side of the Moon, and he said, this is where you need to start. And, um, you know, for me, that was, like, the mid-'90s. The 70s may have felt really far back, but they, like, weren't that far back in all reality. But nowadays, you know, for my son, the 70s are, like, what the 40s were for me. They're almost like a totally different era and I guess there is like a timeless quality to this music, but um, I don't know from your standpoint, well, just with where everything's gone, like, is there, like, are there like different entry points that you see for, you know, younger people as they're discovering music? And, you know, obviously a band like Fish is there for, they're still playing, they're there for, you know, younger audiences. And you might hear a Velvet Underground song and be like, huh, I'm going to go check that band out. But I don't, I don't know what it's, what, what your thoughts are on all that. Yeah, I mean, it's a little bit different. I understand what you mean because yeah, it, you think oh, like yeah, like 1970, like my son was born in 2012, so like Excel on Main Street came out like 40 years before he was born, right. you know. So like he will, so he won't really understand. So if I if I introduced him to it when he was 12, uh, he'll be that album will be over 50 years old. So you think like oh like when I was 12 you know 50 years earlier was like yeah 1940 i mean but you know culture hasn't changed as much true between 72 and 12 as it did between like you know 32 and 72 um especially if you like rock music because you know rock music it is an idiom that kind of uh where like Exile Main Street doesn't, it's not that different sonically from what what rock music is supposed to sound like. I mean, that's basically what rock music is supposed to sound like. So like a band now <laughs> that wants to be a rock band, like they're going to aspire to that production and like and how the band sounds on there. Um, but uh, it's funny because Fish utilized that put, record to kind of get them back to their roots in two thousand nine and really help them right. to, to play in a much tighter way as well so that, that that's interesting see like when I, when I when i hear love and cup now i always think about when i saw the white stripes on uh oh yeah the uh, uh the white blood cells tour like when the show ended they played love and cup really? as the audience walked out like that i mean the rolling stones version like the stripes right. didn't play it yeah. but it was like uh it was so cool. It was like the best walkout music. Well, to doesn't play. Jack White like, play it with the Rolling Stones? There's a Rolling Stones DVD from the mid 2000s where Jack White gets up on stage and sings "Loving Cup" with the Stones. Oh, that's cool. I haven't seen that. Um, when I saw when I saw that show, he did um, "Love Sick" by Bob Dylan. Oh, crazy! Where he was playing it, he played like 
the keyboard at the beginning and then like Mike, Meg White comes in on the drums and then he like starts playing guitar and uh, like the, the, you know, did I say someone tell a lie? Like that part, <laughs> it was so, it was, it was, it was fucking awesome. It's like, you gotta, you gotta remind people that Jack White was awesome once. Right, right. Cause it's like, he, mm. like, like people like hate Jack White now and he's kind of like this humorless uh, caricature now, but like, man, he was fucking awesome in like 2002, 2003. You he know? can still he he can still be awesome. Uh, I said, hey, I, I'm I've become like a big Jack White apologist. I, I I feel like I was I was pretty critical of him for a while, but on this last album cycle, um, I I almost felt like, man, I'm like I gotta shut up about Jack White because I'm 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 too much. Like, I was like almost doing it too much. I feel like, but I I've, I've turned into his biggest apologist now among music critics because it's like open season on him. Like he's well, uh, I mean, Boarding House hated. Reach. I mean, combined Boarding House Reach to me kind of sounds like a B sides collection where he's trying to do like the Beastie Boys and kind of doing it half heartedly. I mean, that combined with the gospel about having to put your cell phones away when you go to see his shows, right. kind of looking like the like Johnny Depp blues man thing. I mean, he's kind of he doesn't make it easy on himself. No, and I think it's more the the latter. I think it's more like the cell phones and like the right. vinyl and like the and uh, the lecturing people about uh, you know technology and 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 all that kind of thing. I think that's what. But in his defense, I mean, all the live vinyls I've gotten from Third Man Records, they all sound incredible. I mean, he's kind of he's doing God's work. Like I've got uh, like a white denim live show from 2011 from Third Man, which is it's just unbelievable in terms of the performance and the sound. So I think he's still doing good things. He doesn't quite get a free pass in my book yet. But yeah, I mean, some of I think I saw the White Stripes five or six times. And those were among the greatest rock shows I saw in the mid two thousands. Yeah. White Stripes, I think, are still pretty unassailable, but I don't know. I feel like their stock has gone down. Uh, I, I feel like the younger generation does not understand the importance of that band. I, 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 I don't know how that gets fixed. It'll, it'll be I think the, White next, has, the next garage rock you know, band that takes off in like 2023 and references the White Stripes. Um, yes, and everyone suddenly goes and checks them out <laughs> again. I mean, yeah. I, I, I kind of feel like um, I know that a year ago, as as the uh, lead up to everything now was going underway, Dave and I were pretty nasty towards Arcade Fire, and that's a band that I loved dearly, and I still want the best for, and I want them to 
I want to at one point feel like I, I'm an apologist for. I just I can't right now. I, um, I don't know. I, uh, I I get what you mean though with Jack. They should have made the Nebraska. They made everything now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I uh, I don't know. I've always had a complicated relationship with Arcade Fire because like I love. I, the, like my favorite record of theirs is the suburbs. Like I love yeah, the sure. suburbs. I mean, I feel like Funeral is like the Bible for true blue believers of the Arcade Fire, and I always felt like that record and Neon Bible were like a little uneven. But like the suburbs, I really liked. The suburbs kind of from beginning is the closest to end. I feel like they topped into being a modern age Springsteen of any sort. I mean, it's in right. some cases so obvious what they were writing about, but that's the best of some some of Springsteen's best material, whereas where he was simply just writing about normal everyday people and their stories. Yeah, I think, I think it was like the, and I think it's the best lyrics yeah. of any Arcade Fire record. Um, and then the last two records, I just, I, I don't know. I, I, it goes off a cliff for me. And like, and now every time you see a photo of Arcade Fire, it's like Regine's playing the guitar yeah. and uh, Wynn is like, has like a terrible haircut and i'm like what what the fuck is going on with you guys like what what you know, they, can't I, I, of, they can't get I, out of their own way it's the problem why, it's, kind of, it's like you being ironic though with the keytar i don't understand that i don't it's like you can't look cool I can't really understand yeah I, or you know i guess or are they just so earnest that they're gonna bring back the guitar. It's like, like don't make fun of the guitar. Like we, we we believe in the guitar. It's like, Fish understands the guitar. Like like Paige brings out the guitar, and it's like okay, it's kind of fun. Right. There's like <laughs> they brought that out like, yes. during yeah. It's like Lomboy during Lomboy. He brought that out, and it's like oh, it's Fish being yeah. It, like they had the proper approach to the guitar. It's like and Paige did cool things with it, but it was sort of like yeah, we're kind of being funny here. Um, Just getting back to classic rock, he uses the guitar for their cover of the Edgar Winter Group's Frankenstein. Yeah. Right, exactly. And yeah. again, that's another example of like them being reverent and irreverent at the same time right. when they do that song. I feel like because it's kind of um, you know like that. That's not a cool classic rock song to cover. Like that would be an example. Like in my book, I talked about the underclass of classic rock. You know, because like on classic rock radio, you you obviously have the Led Zeppelins, the Springsteens, the Black Sabbaths. You know, the the bands that are critically respected. Uh, you know, they're in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. You know, they're acknowledged by cool people. And I'm using cool people in quotes as like important bands. And then you have like the Ario Speedwagons, the Journeys, the Stixes, the Bostons. Even are, like the one hit wonders like Foghat and like Molly Hatchet and Free. Yeah, exactly. The, the more sort of like workman like classic rock bands um, that uh, don't really have any cachet to them. But like if you hear. Um, a stick song at the right moment it hits the spot yeah <laughs> i mean i think boston it, i think boston's awesome just straight up like i i love yeah. boston and and fish covers boston they do uh boston do four cream long, four play long time as well yeah four play long time um right. so uh you know but they play it play bluegrass style well, they did the one honest tribute right. to it in uh, 2000 when they played their last shows at Great Woods before the hiatus. And right, that was two 
Oh, yeah, the, I'm sorry, that was 1999, right? They played the four-play long time to open up dest- great Oh, yeah, yeah, it was 99, sorry. They just destroy uh, four-play long time when they played it uh, uh, earnestly. Um, it's a funny thing about Fitz. Well, there- they, they can be really humorous and they can be really tongue-in-cheek about classic rock history, and it pisses a lot of people off. And then, like, you know, Trey writes or Tom writes really sincere lyrics for, like, a really sincere fish song. And that pisses a lot of people off. You know, it's like there's no, um, like, they tow this this really interesting line between being really serious and sincere and also just, like, taking the piss out of each other and out of, like, their classic rock lineage. And it kind of always keeps them a little bit on the outside. Well, one thing that always kind of it cracks me up a little bit as I've observed fish fans and like, I now consider myself, it's funny cause I consider myself a fish fan and I, you know, I listen to fish a lot, but I also feel like I'm a little outside the fanatics. Like when people argue fish stuff, I tend to be differential to people that are really ensconced in it for years because I feel like, well, they know more than me and right. you know, I'm not going to assert my opinion too much, but like I do laugh a little bit about how judgmental fish fans can be not just about fish, but like about other bands and like how, uh, mm. cause I always think it's hilarious. Cause I'm like, you realize that like fish gets shit on all the time, like, like outside <laughs> of the fish world, people think fish is like this bizarre sort of like crazy thing. But then like, so you would think that maybe fish fans wouldn't be as judgmental, but like they're extremely judgmental or they can be about like, uh, you know, fish covering like other kinds of bands or like, you know, other bands attempting to get into fish world. It's just a funny thing. It just proves that like, it doesn't matter. Um, what you, it doesn't matter what you like. like. Don't do that. Yeah. It just, it just proves yeah. that it doesn't, it doesn't matter what you like. Like, you know, you can be like an indie, a quintessential like indie snob, but you can also be a fish snob at the You know, like oh, snobs yeah. exist in every field, you know, no matter what. Um, so when when Pitchfork finally finally reviewed a, a fish album when they reviewed Big Boat, I became so defensive and so nitpicky about it. And at the same time, I was like, you know, this music magazine I go to on a daily basis uh, is is promoting. You know, I mean, they they obviously gave it a uh, kind of a, a five something lower middle of the road review. There was quite a bit of criticism, and personally, I agree with it. I, I'm not a huge fan of that album myself, um, but I, I definitely went to where you're talking about. Where I was just like, he didn't check his facts on this. I, I don't know who wrote the review, but <laughs> there were there were like three instances where I was reading. And I was like, why is he the person writing about fish? He was saying how this album was inferior to Fuego and how Fuego was a much better record. And I just thought, this guy's not what the fuck he's talking about. It is, though. Don't you think? You think Fuego's better than Big Boat? Um, I, I totally mm. I, I am not a fan of well, a lot of what they did on Big Boat. Another conversation. I don't know. It, yeah, yeah. I, I've had this streak of, like, picking, like, I'll, I'll talk to, like, Rob... Mitchum or something, and I'll be like, I like this song, and they'll be like, Yeah, fish fans hate that song. Yeah. You know, that's happened so many times. I, I wrote about the song The Line from Fuego. Mm. I wrote about it like when I was at Grantland, I wrote it about it in a, a like a Songs of the Week column or something. Yeah. And he's like, Yeah, fish fans hate that song. They hate the line. And they also they didn't hate, hate it at first. They hated it because it kind of got overplayed. And what's funny about the line is that sometimes fish, what they'll do is, um, 
they'll take like three minutes between songs. They'll be excited. Paige will talk to Trey. Trey will talk to Mike. We'll think it's going to be a very, very rare being the line. We're, so. we're back. But well, there's the line and there's backwards down the number line. Right. Like, and like and fish fans hate both songs from mm-hmm. what I've been told. Cause I remember come saying, along on backwards down the number line. That's kind really? of, that's was, like a sugar magnolia. That's like a classic set. Clo- I mean, even, but I always hear people complain that like they play that in the second set, like they'll be, they'll have a really cool jam. And then like they'll play backwards down the number line, like in, in the penultimate slot of like the second set, like before the encore. So like me, you know, like they're, they're going off like a 20 minute space thing. And cause, I mean, I've heard the same complaint about, uh, waiting in the velvet sea, which mm. I, I love that song, yeah. but I've heard, you know, it's all about placement with that song. That's a great song. It's very, very pretty. If it's well placed after like a raging jam, it's a perfect cool down. It's a gorgeous song. Yeah. I think with number line, people have certainly come around on it more than they used to. You know, it's kind of like a happy warrior set closer. And I think a lot of people realize how much that song means to Trey and Tom Marshall lyricists. So I think people don't rag in that one quite as much as the line, whereas the line is, I mean, I think I remember line when, you, bathroom when you line. wrote that thing about uh, the line, you, you specifically referenced um, Deer Hunter's uh, Desire Lines, which to me, I mean, that was one of my favorite records, probably by one of my top three records of this whole decade. And the coda yeah. in that section, the coda in the line, I, I hear it every time I see the line in concert. And that's like the like crossover for me with like where like that that was the thing I loved about the wingsuit and the fuego set which we recently did a big episode on all that um it was the first time I felt like Fish was listening to modern day indie rock or at least experimenting with that sonically in their songwriting and, and I and I loved it You know, and I love the jamming in Fish, and I think it's awesome, but I think there are Fish fans who only care about jams. And, like, I will say that there are Fish songs that I just like as songs. And, like, The Line to me is an example of a song that is just a good song. It builds well, it starts slow, and, you know, I compared it to, to Desire Lines because I feel like it has a gathering intensity to it yeah. that reminded me of the deer hunter song where like it starts slow it builds it builds and then there's a, a, a guitar solo at the end that goes on for a couple of minutes and i like that i mean i'm a sucker for that as a construction for a song like uh strangest thing by 
the war on drugs yeah. has a similar construction where it starts slow it gets a, it gathers an intensity that it has like a big guitar solo at the end and um I mean, every Leonard Skinner song is like that too, I guess, and, and I like that in Leonard Skinner songs too. Um, I'm a sucker for that uh, as a song construction. Um, but you know, I know that it seems like there's a lot of Fish fans who don't really like songs. You know, like Here's they the want thing. the jams. What sets Fish apart from nearly every other jam band is the dirty secret is that they're actually very, very good songwriters, right. and that's why I got into them in the first place. Is you know, I mean, I didn't know from the jams. Back in the mid '90s, I was listening to the studio records. I got hooked on the songs. Like right. they are, they come from the classic rock lineage of putting the songs first, and then the jams come second. I mean, I think a lot of their proteges, some of like the younger jam acts of today, they're incredible musicians who can jam, but they can't write a song to save their lives. Right. I mean, still, I, yeah. Like I, I'm still waiting for some indie band to cover Billy Breathes. Right. You know, and like, and do an awesome cover of that. Like, I just think that's such a beautiful song. I mean, like, I love that album, Billy Breathes. I just think of that as like their Beatles album. Like, that'd be like a great like James album. Mercer, like the Shins could kill something like that. Yeah, but someone younger, you know, okay. Mercer. <laughs> I mean, like yeah, someone yeah. up and coming, you know, like Mercer. I don't make know. a name for themselves based on that. They grab the fish scene type of thing. I, I totally. Or, or even someone like Woods. Even yeah. if like someone like Woods did that song, that um, guy could definitely cover Billy Breeds with his voice. Yeah, but or, or like a band. I mean, like if you know, like if Fleet Foxes really wanted to do like a serious fish tribute, they could do, like some like a band that can actually have two or three singers. Singing, you know, like the round part at the end, you know, or, you know, like because I just think that's so yeah, yeah, cool that. in that song. Well, um, you know, it's, it's interesting. I mean, to Dave's point and to what you've been saying, you know, about your your love for fish, you know, based around the songs, you know, kind of two things that they've done over the last four or five years that I think are such a testament to their songwriting. Uh, the New Year's Run in 2013, they played. <clears throat> all originals they didn't play a single cover and some people thought it was kind of a uh nod to billy joel calling them a glorified cover band for for playing new year's eve at, at msg that year but then again this last summer the that's an urban stuff, legend by the way yeah <laughs> um this last i didn't summer, know that about billy joel yeah there was a rumor that went around during that run that they because after like a night and a half it became really apparent that they hadn't played a single cover and um, they started throwing out like it's an unfounded rumor that um, that they were uh, not going to play covers, and then you know it ended up with over, over those four shows they only played originals. And I don't know if it's true. I think I think it's uh, part of the funny competition between Fish fans and Billy Joel more so than Fish and Billy Joel. <laughs> you know, I yeah, I think that. Fish could actually do a great cover of Scenes from an Italian Restaurant. Mm. That actually kind of seems like a fishy song. That's like the fishiest song in Billy Joel's catalog. Um, they could do that song really well. I think they could. So I'm going to put that out in the universe that they should. I'm, I'm probably the only person in the world that would want to hear Fish cover Scenes from an Italian Restaurant, but I think that'd be pretty awesome. Well, I'll tell you, um, end of to your the, point, if they played it for 20 minutes, everybody would love it. I think like the first fish show I really really loved was the '96 Halloween show where they do "Remain in Light." Okay, and I think that was like I think that was one of those like sort of 
Yeah, because again, it was like the albums that they were playing. I loved all those albums. So, you know, not totally being not being sold on fish yet to hear them do the white album or to hear them do quadrophenia you know it was like okay i i, I get this you know and in, in quadrophenia you know their version of of drowned is like i i've never heard them play that that's like one of my like white way their show because i i hmm. love their their cover of drowned there's like a there's a version from 97 it might be that Denver show where they do like a 20 minute drown at the beginning of set two, which is uh, in like the second half is kind of spacey. I think you're talking about Rochester 97 nice. where they go into Roses okay. Are Free. It's a really yes. very spacey, yes. very atmospheric drown. Yeah. Almost the thing I love about that version, it points very clearly towards what they were about to do in 98 in terms of like the Eno influence. Right. And um, yeah, that's a. I saw an excellent, very spacey drowned from the Baker's Dozen this past summer that um, I would highly recommend. Oh if you yeah, have listen to it from July thirty. I know I have Jimmy's listened. Night. Well, I listened to all those. I, uh, that was a that was a fucking blast following that <laughs> Baker's Dozen. You know, like getting, you know, you get the you get the app, you know, you get the live fish app, so you can get the soundboard pristine stream like the second the show ends and uh you know and i was also doing uh, I, I i ponied up for a bunch of the live streams too during that not every single one but um yeah that was that was a really fun time following baker's dozen um but uh but yeah like that remain in light show was a big gateway for me getting into the getting into fish it was a huge turning point from the band as well i mean i think we we even argue on a past episode that i mean once they were able to pull off like remain in the light like that i mean not only was the final portion of the 96 tour incredible but that kind of told them that there's just no limits and that led into the mastery which was um which was europe 97 and of course summer and fall 1997 all of which just which fit off of them being able to do that talking heads album and just them starting to get funkier too and like being less of a band that was like a trio backing up a wildly guitar soloing guitarist which is what they were you know kind of before like i'm um i've been really on a 93 fish kick lately and i love that era but they're definitely more of like a like a power trio plus a piano player at that time you know which is really cool. I love that for what it is, but certainly by the end of 96 going into 97, that's when you start to feel that they're more of an ensemble playing together. And it's, it's so it's, it's just butter, you know, and they can really kind of go together and play as a clenched fist rather than just a band backing up a guitar player. Have you ever listened to, have you uh, dove into like the fall or December of 1995 for fish at all? I've dabbled. I've not uh, ninety. It's funny because like ninety three and ninety four, I've really got into ninety seven. I feel like it's like the best year for fish. I and would like say if if you haven't, bands, yet, but like if if you have the Fish OD app, um, which I think you actually referenced oh, I the do. book, which which was great. What a shout out to, that's my favorite app on my phone. Uh, just brilliant, brilliant um, what they did. But 
starting with December 1st, 1995, all the way through December 17th, those two and a half weeks, I would personally argue, are the absolute peak of the band. There's not a single show in there that you won't find numerous highlights. And for you know someone like yourself, a huge part of your book it has to do with Quadrophenia. That whole sound that they were playing with at that period in time is just a... Um, it's like they, they took Quadrophenia and applied it to a spacey, jammy, noodly band and just made them very tight, very much of a uh, amped up arena rock band. It's really, really great stuff. Digging into '95, well, like uh, that, and I mean, I, I'm familiar with the New Year's Eve show. Uh huh. Of from course, that of year. course, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, Which the, is like you know, like one of the greatest shows of all time in totally. fish lore. So I know that show, um, but yeah, I haven't, I haven't dug as deep into '95. So you guys are talking this up. So I hope you're not yeah. setting me up for disappointment because it, when you say it's the the peak of fish, I'm just trying to imagine it being better than 97 because I just feel like 97 almost like from beginning to end is just incredible. So, I was just thinking about um there's this version of uh of Runaway Jim from 97. I think it's like July 30 97. It's a, it's on one of those live bait yeah, yeah, from, from July thirty first. Yeah, yeah, July thirty first. It's yeah, it's like a half hour version of Runaway Jim. It's just fucking incredible. Like, yeah. I, I, I mean, they're just like, um, just where that they're just going into the fucking stratosphere in there, and and it, you know that thing we were talking about before, where uh, with the, with this spacey drowned. I mean, they kind of go off into like more of like an ambient type feel, uh, in the back half of that too. Um, but man, this, I mean, I, I own, I mean, I, I have, I mean, like those, uh, like the, the North Carolina w- weekend, you know, from November and, uh, uh-huh. and like the, um, Winston Salem uh, Hampton. Yeah. Winston Salem Hampton, the Amsterdam shows, like the one from February. And then there's one, I think that summer. And then, um, the Ventura show from 97, like there's like, like three box sets. I think that like draw from 97. So yeah, um, the way, the way you have to, the way you got to think about it, the reason why I'm saying it, that it's that that's my own personal peak. There's, there are almost two different bands between 1995 and 1997. And there are certain jams you could listen to in 1995 where you hear, the like foundations there's a big 40 minute stash into manteca and uh uh dog face boy back into stash from november of 95 where you hear them starting to really dabble with funk but to me i've talked to a lot of fish fans about this december 95 they did this massive fall tour where they started in late september and ended in mid-december and the last two weeks of the tour are two weeks in their home turf and they were as tight as possible, 
and it was a 12-year build to that month where they were essentially doing a victory lap around the East Coast and the Northeast, and they were playing with so much aggression, and they were playing on this high that they had been building towards for you know 12 years at that point in time, half of which they were completely unknown. And only after that, after that uh, New Year's Eve 95 show, did they realize kind of in the same way that like you could imagine like you two did after the Joshua Tree and then Rattle and Hum, they had to completely reinvent their sound to figure out how to continue to grow. And that was when they were starting to dabble with more minimalism and they were trying to be more of a collective unit. Remain in Light happened and all of that then built to this kind of second peak in 97 that really i mean the band almost could have broken up after december or december 31st 95 and they would have had this huge statement run to go out on i gotta dig into this period (laughs) i'm way behind i i feel like i'm overdue all right well i'm excited awesome excited to dig into that well i know that uh you know you're you're a busy guy we we really want to thank you a ton for all of your time here and kind of deep diving with us in the fish and classic rock. And, um, I think if there's any last question I have for you, there, are there any kind of notable records for you in 2018 or any overlooked albums that you think us or our listeners would, would be into? Oh man. Yeah, definitely. I mean, one record that I wrote about recently that I really love is the Amen Dunes record freedom, yes. mm, which, yeah. which, which a lot of people have, uh, talked about and Definitely enjoyed that. you know, yeah, and Eamon you know, Dunes like their previous records are. I mean, they've been described as freak folk records, and there is sort of like a sh- a shambolic quality to them, and they're largely acoustic based. And this new record um, is it's a lot tighter, it's more rhythmic. Um, you know they don't really sound like the War on Drugs, but there are there are there are songs on that record that have a similar sort of emotional release to them, like where mm-hmm. they start out quiet and they build to uh, these big emotional payoffs. Um, not as big sounding as the War on Drugs, but like I don't know, I, that record I've liked a lot. Um, have you heard the latest record from this band called Doma Gang? Yes. Like, uh, okay. Like, I think that kind of, for me, hits the sweet spot between 
fishy, but some serious Chuglin action. And he's got some jams in that record. Listen um, to that quite a bit. Have you guys listened to Nap Eyes at all? That's the guy who sounds like Lou Reeb. He's Canadian, right? Yeah, it's kind of like yeah. a silver juicy, little, little, kind of like silver juice, a little bit like Velvet Underground. Um, you just said like, the magic word to Brian here. Yeah, yeah they're just, a good band. You just said silver juice. There's a band. Um, <laughs> there's a band. Oh man, never mind. There's there's a record that I got recently. I don't think it's been announced yet. Um, it's a band. It's their second record. And I've been listening to that album a lot. That's a really good record. Uh, that's like one of the one of the year's best records uh, for sure. Coming out from like a they, this band, they put out their first record last year, and their second record's coming out this year. And I think it's going to turn some heads. It's really good. Wild Pink. Yeah. Wild Pink. Yeah, like I wrote uh, about them yeah, last year. Um, they, their new record. Their record. They put out their first record last year. It's like a really good record. Um, and their new one is like pretty war and drugsy. Oh, cool. Like they definitely like kind of plugged it. Like their first record is more, um, I don't know. They got, they got classified as emo, but like. Is there a band they, named they, Pink in the title that's like a dream pop band? I'm thinking of something else. No, not really. Like the, oh. the main guy, like he loves, um. He loves Petty and Springsteen and like, like Paul Simon. Like you talk about like Paul Simon's Graceland being his like favorite record. Like it's kind of like a singer songwriter record. Like good lyrics, but like kind of slow, pretty, like mid tempo type stuff. But like the new record is like just more anthemic and like has like kind of more synths on it and stuff and kind of leaning more into the Heartland Rock thing and. Nice. Um, like Ian Cohen loves that record. It's like his favorite record of the year, and yeah, I would, I would, I would check out their first record. I, I it's really good, and I, like, I, I interviewed the main guy in the band, and I wrote a story about them last year, and uh, they're good bands, like good lyrics, good songs, and this next album is, is like good up for them. So sure. I've been listening to that record a lot, like really. Off a metal gurney outside And my mind goes To the bend in the road And bloody asphalt And I wonder how different some days go I smell the grass and the trees After the rain and the breeze Shout out is one I actually had mentioned 
it started to listen to in a few episodes of Beyond the Pond, but um, the latest album from Erica, um, from Erica Wonderstrom, formerly from Heartless Bastards, her new solo record, I think is phenomenal. She's just yes. really stepping out, longer songs, almost like shoegaze sounding. I mean, and almost some of it sounds like it could have come off like a Verve album. I'm just very impressed with the progression from Heartless Bastards to her new album. I've been playing that nonstop. Yes, I like that record too. Coastal Fever. I don't know if you guys yes. know. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. Have a so they have the, they've put out two EPs in the past yeah. like two years. They have a full length album coming out. I think in like May. June. It comes out in June. Okay, yeah. that record is really cool. Yeah, I listened to that last week. I, I, I liked it quite a bit. That record's really good. I'm just going through my iTunes right here to uh, look at the first episode finished record. we did of 2018. We featured Jeff Rosenstock's Post, a record that I'm kind of surprised hasn't continued to build in terms of um, hype around it because I think that's just one of the most poignant albums of, of 2018. I love that record and then hearing him describe Born to Run on your Springsteen series um, and drop probably 45 F-bombs just made that much more sense to why yes. I love that record. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people love that episode. That that turned out really well. I was going to say, I don't know if you, you guys have listened to the U.S. Girls album in a Pullman Limited. That's on my phone. Record. I, That's like one of my favorite albums of the year. Um. And uh, yeah, the snail mail record I think is really good. That that comes out in June. Um, I think people, she's like 19 years old and she's writing incredible songs. So had a very 90s like indie matador sound to the single, which I liked a yes, lot. Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, Casey Musgraves record I liked a lot. That, uh, that a it's lot. funny. It, to me, she's like a Heim like, record. Yeah, or like, or like, 
and it made me, it made me think of like Rilo Kylie, like like late period Rilo Kylie record, like where when Rilo Kylie became like a, like a Fleetwood Mac sounding band at the end, which I think was great. Um, I think that Casey Musgraves record has some of that, and there's like vocoder on that record. It kind of sounds like Daft Punk. Like this one song, it kind of has like a Daft Punk sound to it. Oh, that's right. The fourth song that song was Oh What a World has the vocoder. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like a disco song towards the end that's got a bit of like a Robin thing going on. Yeah. Yeah, that's a very, very well put together, chill album on like the Heim Fleetwood Mac fantasy camp spectrum. Totally, totally. So, I don't know. We've just listed like about 10 records. Hop Along record is good. Hop Along record. You know, one record... Not one record that like kind of one record that kind of came and went, no one's talked about. I think could be a sleeper is the uh, MGMT record, Little Dark Age. I think is a mm. really good record. I don't know if you guys have listened to any MGMT. Oh yeah. Um, I think I think Congratulations is a fucking masterpiece. I love that record. And like the record they made after that, the self titled album that like no one really listened to. That's like a noisy, weird, drugged out. Wow. Yeah, totally. It's a very brown sounding album. Very brown. And the new record is just like a good psych pop record. There's yeah. a lot of really good songs on it. Um, um, and it, it kind of came and went. No one talked about it, but um, that's a really good record. Really good indie rock record. I, I think people uh, need to revisit that one. A lot of good mm-hmm. tunes on that album. I think they deserve I'd say a st- totally revised, <clears throat> like, like renewed approach by writers and fans everywhere because i think that people still get stuck in the singles that came off of oracular spectacular or whatever was that the name of that album from 2008 yeah yeah, yeah. Oh. i think everyone and then you go back and listen to that album and it's a really weird album in and of itself it just has these very catchy singles um i think a revised approach to like a revised look at them from the perspective that they're just a really weird band that happened to be able to write two really catchy or three really catchy songs would help people to listen to them in a totally different way. See, I feel like it's the opposite where people only remember those songs and like, well, they love those no, that's songs. The problem I mean is like everyone's views them through the prison of the prism of like, those are the songs that are MGMT when really that's not who they are at all. Right. Right. <clears throat> um, yeah. On that note, I'd just say, you know, Stephen, once again, really love to thank you for coming on. You've given us a whole lot of stuff to choose from, a um, whole lot of things to chew on, I mean. And uh, just to all of the Beyond the Pond listeners, I really can't, can't, uh, can't emphasize this enough. If you like this conversation, if you like our podcast, you are the target audience for Twilight of the Gods. I Absolutely. really enjoyed that book. I think everyone would very much enjoy hearing that book if you like this podcast. And I would well, as well, yeah. you would love, if you haven't listened to Celebration Rock, to the Celebration Rock podcast, um, also the Celebration Rock album. But <clears throat> if you haven't listened to the podcast, you should absolutely go and do that. Put that, subscribe to it. It's a fantastic podcast, really um, kind of in the same sense as your book, Twilight of the Gods. Just a great deep dive into such fantastic music that forms the foundation for a lot of us here. Well, guys, thank you so much, man. It's fun talking fish and 
classic rock with you guys. This is a fun night. I've been drinking beer the whole time. Uh, I got I got a good I got a good music and good beer buzz on here. So thank you so much, man. Absolutely, thank you so much, dude. All right. guys i sincerely hope that you enjoyed that uh in-depth interview we did with Stephen hyden author of twilight of the gods journey to the end of classic rock as well as the host of the celebration rock podcast um, a quick reminder of where you can find us we are on twitter at underscore beyond the pond uh, on simplecast we have a website beyond the pond dot simplecast.fm on Spotify, we post all the songs that we play that are available on Spotify in a massive 200-plus song playlist now. You can find that at Beyond the Pond Podcast Songs. You can also find us via our podcast network, OsirisPod.com, where you can check out other podcasts that we are associated with. And uh, one last thing, we would greatly appreciate an iTunes review, an iTunes rating it means a ton to us to get that Just from a personal standpoint. And it does a really great thing for uh, our standing within iTunes and the vis- visibility for other fans to find us. So if you could just jump on, do a 10-second iTunes review, click a couple of stars for us, hopefully five, that would be great. But if you want to do three, that's okay too. If you do two, yeah, don't do two. We'll take three or five or four. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, come back in one week when we'll actually have uh, a very special episode ready to go live. And also, we always just want to emphasize if you like the bands that you heard in this episode, please go see them live. Buy some merchandise, you know, buy vinyl. Find a way to help these acts make money just because it's really harder than ever in the music industry these days to earn a buck. And especially in the case of classic rock bands, if they're coming your way, you might want to see them because you never know how much time that they're going to have left. And just one more time, we want to uh, encourage you guys to go out and buy Stephen's new book, Twilight of the Gods, A Journey to the End of Classic Rock. It's a really fantastic read. Dave and I both blew through it. We know that you guys will as well. Um, definitely give him some support listen to uh, his excellent podcast Celebration Rock Pod um, great great stuff from Steven and uh, we hope to have him back on again so come back in one week not two weeks we're actually going to put one out in one week we will hold hands we will sing Kumbaya hopefully we will not collude with Russia and then we will go beyond the pond
Osiris.